Hi, I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's Library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this special episode of The American Idea. We're going to be talking today about the evolution of the vice presidency. It's really a, a follow-up with, to our conversation with former Vice President Mike Pence, and it's really our desire to follow up those kind of conversations with major public figures with our own conversations with scholars uh, to help us deepen our understanding and insight into the topic of that conversation. So joining me today to talk about the vice presidency is Dr. Steve Knott. Um, Dr. Dr. Knott is an old friend of the Ashbrook Center. <laughs> he is the professor uh, of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He's also the Thomas and Mabel Guy Professor of American History and Government at Ashland University. He teaches many courses for Ashbrook in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program, uh, teaching American history seminars. Uh, Steve has been involved in all of it and does a terrific job. Um, prior to this position, he, he co-chaired actually the Presidential Oral History program at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. He received his PhD from Boston College and his BA from Assumption College. Um, he is a New England man born, bred, and educated, <laughs> but also an expert in the presidency. Um, in fact, he recently participated in the C-SPAN Presidential Leadership Survey. He's the author of some terrific books. Let me highly recommend them to you all, our listeners. Books on Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, Presidential Greatness, American Foreign Policy. Steve has really devoted his time and energy and scholarly thinking to the question of the proper place of the executive in the American Constitutional Republic. Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. I love the the program that you run, Jeff, uh, you guys do some tremendous work. Uh, I was glad to hear you, you refer to me as an old friend, because um, the word old, I think, is getting quite operative in my case. So, <laughs> How about longstanding? <laughs> longstanding. I like that even better. Thank you. The, the vice presidency. We had a chance, obviously, to chat with former Vice President Pence, who, who lived the office um, during a very important time in our country's history. Let, let me take a step back, because it seems like the, the office that Mike Pence occupied is not quite the same office that the first vice president, John Adams, occupied. And in fact, there's this, I, I saw this wonderful letter from Adams in, 19, in 1793 to his wife, Abigail. Let me quote it for you. He says this, my country in its wisdom has contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. <laughs> That's the first vice president, John Adams. Talk about the office of the vice president as it develops at the Constitutional Convention and then as it's lived out for John Adams. Yeah, great question, Jeff. So for John Adams, uh, it's, it's important to note that the vice presidency was something of an afterthought at the Constitutional Convention. It really doesn't even emerge as a subject of discussion until late August, early September 
uh, when the framers settle on the idea of an electoral college uh, in terms of selecting the president, that was a that decision as to how we're actually going to select the president was a fairly contentious one. Once they settled on the idea of an electoral college, that sort of led them to conclude that we may need a vice president because what that electoral college system did was set up a race, although it's not quite accurate to call it a presidential race, where the top two winners uh, would emerge, the number one winner would emerge as president, the person who came in second would become vice president. And the reason they created that sort of two person uh, position was because they wanted to make sure that the electors voted for somebody other than uh, individuals from their own state. So in other words, they're required to cast a vote for somebody outside of their own state, somebody who perhaps has a national reputation to kind of break any sort of parochial hold on the presidency. So in a sense, the vice presidency is created to allow for the system of selection of the American president. And then of course, John Adams is our first vice president and the, the few constitutional tasks given to the vice president, and there are very few, uh, but perhaps the most important of all, at least at this time, is to preside over the United States Senate. And this is a kind of strange mixing of sort of an executive position being given a legislative task, if you will. And I think Adams was in a tough spot in terms of just defining the office. And then to compound the sort of constitutional ambiguity about the role of the vice president, John Adams and George Washington had something of a strained relationship. And while John Adams had selected George Washington, in a sense, to be the commander of the Continental Army, and Washington owed his fame to Adams, Washington, I think it's fair to say, kept John Adams at a distance. He was not part of the inner circle of the Washington presidency. Again, he was seen more as a creature of the Senate. And by the way, in that role, Adams cast 29 tie-breaking votes. Wow, uh, so he, that, that was a really actually important part of his vice presidency. Absolutely, Jeff. And in terms of the entire history of the vice presidency, John Adams comes in at number two in terms of casting the most tiebreakers. John C. Calhoun gets the award for winning the most, uh, for casting the most tiebreaking votes. So again, there's a personal reason, I think, why Washington keeps Adams at a distance. In that, Adams is somewhat critical of George Washington. He thinks Washington is getting more credit for the success of the American Revolution and that he, John Adams, deserves a greater share of that credit. And then there's also this kind of constitutional ambiguity that keeps the vice president in this awkward limbo, if you will. So when you say he is kept at some distance by Washington, for example, we think of cabinet meetings. Is, the, is John Adams as the vice president in cabinet meetings having serious discussions about the course of the country and public policy? He is in some of the cabinet meetings, Jeff, uh, but not, by no means not all. And while he is in those cabinet meetings, again, due to his own sense of the ambiguity, the lack of a clear uh, job profile, if you will, he's not a particularly outspoken participant in these cabinet meetings. Of course, Alexander Hamilton, who's uh, loved to go on at great length about things, 
tended to dom- dominate those meetings anyways. But he's, he's not at all a key player in those meetings, even though he does attend some of them. So, so in his role as vice president, obviously he becomes, he succeeds Washington in 1796 as president. He, he is elected. In that day, as you just said, the Constitution still has the first vote getter becoming president and the second vote getter becoming vice president. This leads to the strange historical situation where the second vice president is Thomas Jefferson, who, had, who was or at least becomes Adams' political rival. That's, that's correct, Jeff. And you, you have a situation, in all fairness to poor John Adams, he actually does reach out to vice president-elect Jefferson and offers to have some type of cooperative uh, government of national unity, perhaps we could call it. Uh, But Jefferson rebuffs those overtures. Uh, Adams even suggested at one point of dispatching Jefferson to France to try to resolve some of the contentious issues between the United States and France in the early years of the Adams administration. So you do have this awkward situation under the original constitution of the presidential candidate who comes in second, taking the position of the vice presidency And here you have, almost right off the bat, an example of two folks who simply did not see eye to eye on the great issues of the day. So this, by the way, is going to be one of the first, this this sort of gives an impetus to what will become the 12th Amendment, which sort of revises the whole presidential, vice presidential selection process. And then with that 12th Amendment, right, in the election of 1800, and then after that, the 12th Amendment, we have the vice president and the president essentially running now as a slate together. Um, the 19th century then kind of uh, being, begins a new era for the vice presidency. He's more connected now personally and politically to the president of the United States. Um, talk about Thomas Jefferson as, either as a vice president or the Jefferson administration and his vice presidents. Do we have a sense now of some change in the office of vice president? Yeah, I think I think we do, Jeff. And you know, one thing to consider is by the second half of the Adams administration, after when the quasi war with France begins, Jefferson, of course, is very much in sympathy with the French. He believes that Adams and the Federalists are kind of in cahoots with the British. And so it's at this point, while Jefferson is the vice president of the United States, that he and James Madison team up to write the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. And Jefferson's statement is particularly, um, I mean, a borderline secessionist statement. And here he is, the sitting vice president of the United States. So you, in, in Jefferson, you're seeing somebody who's entirely divorced from the presidential administration, who is, in a sense, directing the opposition to the sitting president. That's kind of a remarkable situation. It sure is. And of course, when Jefferson becomes president, you have another screw up, if you will, in that the Democrat Republicans don't quite get their act together in the election of 1800. Their electors screw up and they pass the same number of votes for Jefferson as president. Burr was supposed to be considered the vice presidential candidate as part of this ticket that you mentioned. And they make a mistake. Both of them win the same number of electoral votes. And so the election is thrown into the house. That just furthers the drive to sort of straighten out this somewhat Byzantine presidential slash vice presidential selection process. 
and ultimately culminating in the 12th Amendment in 1804. So after 1804 then, in the rest of the 19th century, um, in your mind, what are some important moments in the history of the vice presidency in the 19th century? Yeah, I would say a really key moment, Jeff, in the history of the vice presidency occurs early in 1841. Uh, William Henry Harrison, the weak candidate for president, uh, wins fairly easily against uh, his Democrat-Republican opponents, the party of, of Andrew Jackson. By this point, actually, I should just call it his Democratic Party opponents. Um, Harrison wins, but of course, as we all know, he dies 31 days into office. Uh, at the time, he is our oldest elected president. He's got some pre-existing health conditions, dies of pneumonia. Harrison's vice president was John Tyler of Virginia. John Tyler was not at heart a Whig. Harrison was a Whig. Tyler was selected to sort of appeal to Southern Democrats to allow the Whigs to expand their electoral prospects into the South. Uh, no Whig expected uh, President Harrison to die a month into office. Lo and behold, now you have John Tyler, the vice president, or as some refer to him, his accidents, accidency, uh, becoming <laughs> president of the United States. And he's surrounded by Whigs, including Daniel Webster, the Secretary of State, uh, powerful Henry Clay uh, in, in Congress. Um, they are very suspicious of John Tyler. But the important thing to note here about Tyler is that he, for whatever failings he may have had, he really breathes life into this idea that upon the death of the president of the United States, the vice president assumes all of the responsibilities. He's not an acting president. He is a full-blown president with all the powers and privileges and duties that, that, that comes with that job description. We owe that to John Tyler. He's a remarkably significant figure in the history of the American vice presidency. Well, that's fascinating because uh, your suggestion is before that time, there really wasn't a settled idea on what happens if the vice president becomes president. Is he then really the president? Or as you said, is he just kind of an acting president who limps along until we have another election? Uh, absolutely true, Jeff. And uh, Tyler makes it crystal clear, first to his cabinet, by the way, when he first meets with Harrison's cabinet, Daniel Webster, as the ranking member, the Secretary of State, says to President Tyler, um, Mr. President, William Henry Harrison had a process where he would take a vote of the cabinet members and the majority will would prevail. And Tyler flat out says, that's not how we're gonna do business, gentlemen. I'm gonna be making the decisions. As George W. Bush would say, I'm gonna be the decider. And, uh -huh. um, and, and just other sort of, they may not seem important to us today, but they certainly were at the time. If you wrote any correspondence to President Tyler and you referred to him as acting president or some other less than full-blown title, he actually would not open the envelope. He would return the mail. So he's laying down a marker that this person, whether, regardless of how he became president, has the full responsibility given to any elected president. Uh, that's a very, very important step in the development of this office. Well, and that, that really becomes important, I'm thinking, later in the Civil War, um, when you have uh, Abraham Lincoln and his assassination in, in 1865. His first vice president, um, some of our listeners probably know, was a guy named Hannibal Hamlin. 
Lincoln decides not to run again with Hamlin in 1864 and instead chooses Andrew Johnson. Uh, what's behind Lincoln's decision and why is that significant in the history of the vice presidency? So I would say in this case, Jeff, to some extent, the removal of Hannibal Hamlin from Maine, who, by the way, had very impressive anti-slavery credentials. It's kind of an interesting counterfactual to think about. Had Hamlin succeeded Lincoln in 1865 instead of Johnson, the whole path of Reconstruction, I think, would have taken a very different course. But um, the reason Hamlin is replaced is because in 1863, 64, Lincoln is still very worried about the border states. And Andrew Johnson, the senator from Tennessee, the only member of a state that seceded from the Union to hold, to keep his Senate seat was Andrew Johnson of Tennessee. He's a Unionist through and through. And Lincoln appreciated that loyalty that Andrew Johnson showed him in the early days of the Civil War. And so as the contentious election of 1864 approaches, uh, Lincoln, and I should say in some ways, this is more William Seward and Thurlow Weed, Lincoln's sort of political brain trust. They're the ones who are saying, Mr. President, we need to make sure we secure some votes in these border states, uh, places like Kentucky, Maryland, even a state like Delaware. We don't need a vice president for Maine, we need to balance the ticket with Andrew Johnson, a loyal Southern Unionist who's been very loyal to our cause. By the way, Lincoln appoints him the territorial governor of Tennessee, uh, not the, excuse me, the military governor of Tennessee in 1862. So he's even gone that far. He's actually working for the Union to manage the Union controlled sections of Tennessee for the administration. So that loyalty is rewarded. It's the political team around Lincoln that says to him, Mr. President, this is the guy we need to go with. Hannibal Hamlin's just not gonna bring that much to the ticket. And um, that choice has far reaching consequences. It does, sadly, in my view. Uh, you know, Andrew Johnson, uh, you know, he shows up at his vice presidential inauguration in March, 1865. By all accounts, he's, he's drunk. He gives a uh, slurring speech that, you know, even Lincoln was sort of appalled at and Lincoln really was appalled at anything. Um, and so right, the, the reason I'm telling that little anecdote is right from the start, he gets off on a kind of a, a bad foot, shall we say. He is, by the way, a target of the assassination conspiracy that kills President Lincoln. Uh, his attacker decides not to carry, to follow through. So Johnson assumes the presidency the real point, though, the real sadness, in my view, is that Johnson fairly quickly, not at first, but fairly quickly, uh, begins to oppose the proposals of the so-called radical Republicans, which, in my view, is something of a misnomer. Uh, but he, he starts to really kind of dig in his heels to oppose, I think, a number of measures that might have helped the newly freed slaves get on their feet and perhaps, perhaps push this country further in the direction of living up to its founding creed that all men are created equal. You, you just can't say that about Andrew Johnson's policies, unfortunately. So it, it reveals, uh, to my mind, the importance. Uh, another John Adams uh, quote one that I'm really fond of, think, and again, thinking about the vice presidency, where he says, um, I am vice president. In this, I am nothing. 
but I may be everything. Yeah, terrific, terrific, and terrific. It turns out Andrew Johnson sort of becomes everything and, and it, with respect to reconstruction and the future course of the country. Uh, terrific. Well, well, well put, Jeff. And, you know, one thing I should point out is in addition to what I would see as kind of uh, policies that reversed some of the potential gains made during the Civil War, um, Jack's, excuse me, Johnson demeans the office, and I'm certainly not the first one to say this, but he engages in very, very over-the-top demagogic assaults against his political opponents, primarily the radical Republicans. At, at one point, he actually uh, compares his impeachment, uh, his difficulties with the radical Republicans to the fate of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, at another wow. point, mm. He uh, urges or hints at the execution, the hanging of prominent radical Republicans like Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner and some of the others. So just absolutely demagogic, over the top. Uh, one of his State of the Union messages is unfortunately one of the more racist uh, documents in the history of the American presidency. It, it's, it's truly... Um, just just a, a bad mark on, on the presidency and on our nation as a whole. Hmm. So after Johnson as vice president becomes president, um, we have, we have uh, it, it happens a, a couple more times, unfortunately. We have assassination of no. Garfield, for example. We have the assassination of McKinley. Theodore Roosevelt then becomes, uh, from, goes from vice president to president. Over the course of the development of the late 19th and early 20th century, do you start to see, for example, with Teddy Roosevelt, do mm. you start to see a different view of the vice presidency or has it really remained as it was with John Adams back in the 18th century? Yeah, I would say on the whole, Jeff, that the, the changes that have occurred in the vice presidency as we approach the turn into the 20th century are still, uh, they're hard to detect. Now, look, Teddy Roosevelt was an oversized personality. Uh, he is put on the ticket uh, by the Republican leadership in the, for the election of 1900 because of his impressive war record in the Spanish-American War, uh, because of his uh, good, solid, progressive credentials. Uh, McKinley was viewed somewhat warily by many progressives. TR was not. He was their favorite. And so you've got this oversized personality with a progressive agenda who all of a sudden, due to another violent assassination, becomes president of the United States. And by the way, the party leaders who helped to put TR on the ticket were horrified when this happens. Oh, really? Not, oh, yeah. I mean, not just because President McKinley had been murdered. Of course, they were horrified by that. But now, as one of them put it, this, and I'm loosely paraphrasing here, this crazy man. This crazy cowboy was now president of the United States. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt's going to use this office to, uh, to the fullest extent, some might even say pushing the office well beyond its, its constitutional limitations. Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> as president, he does that. As vice president, That's correct. Suggesting he, as vice president, he re retains something of a more traditional role. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So when you say that, so uh, early 20th century, I mean, I, I'm thinking even of Thomas Marshall, uh, Woodrow Wilson's VP. And I, I yeah. love this quote from him where he says, he tells a story of two brothers. This yeah, is a yeah. famous story. He says, I, let me tell you the story of two brothers. One ran away to sea. The other was elected vice president of the United States. And nothing was ever heard of either of them again. 
<laughs> so even still, by the time you get to World yeah. War One, the vice presidency really does seem like his job is just to check in on the, the health of the president, as I think John McCain put it. That's right. That's right. And Jeff, perhaps to go to the occasional uh, funeral of a prominent American political figure, or perhaps go to a par- to a party to a political party event or to an Independence Day celebration that the president can't make. Yes, highly ceremonial. Thomas Marshall, by the way, is an interesting character. Uh, he's, he's obviously a Democrat. Woodrow Wilson selects him uh, because uh, Marshall had a very progressive record as a, the governor of Indiana. Uh, but interestingly enough, when Woodrow Wilson suffers a serious debilitating stroke uh, late in his second term, Uh, Marshall is put in a very awkward position. He tries as delicately and as diplomatically as he can to reach out to Wilson's inner circle, uh, which is basically Wilson's wife and uh, 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 the press secretary, I think Joseph Tumulty was his name, uh, to say, look, you know, do you want me to sort of pick up some of the slack here? They were offended uh, by what they saw as Marshall's intrusions on the presidency. And so Mrs. Wilson and Tumulty and some of the other inner circle keep Vice President Marshall at arm's length throughout this lengthy period, I think it's close to two years, perhaps more, where Woodrow Wilson is basically just barely functioning. Um, so, you know, that Marshall vice presidency in that second term is probably worthy of some more study Uh, You know, it just shows you to a great extent what you were getting at, Jeff, even in a case where it might seem that, you know, the the responsible thing to do would be to give some greater responsibilities to the vice president. It's just not done. Um, but, But the executive office grows during the 20th century, as you as a scholar have demonstrated, as, as we know from studying American history. Um, the executive branch gains enormous power after World War I, particularly during the Great Depression under the, under the Franklin Roosevelt administration. FDR serves, he's elected to four terms right. and starts, I guess, to serve his fourth term. Um, he has several vice presidency. How do we see as the executive office grows and as the power of the president grows, do we see a, a similar growth in the power of the vice president? Or again, does the vice president remain really s- separated from that executive office? I do think, Jeff, you begin to see some in- incremental uh, expansion of vice presidential responsibilities. As you mentioned, FDR had three vice presidents. His first, John Nance Garner, was a longtime member of the United States Congress. And FDR actually relied quite a bit on Garner during his first term to help him push through some of the New Deal legislation that President Roosevelt was proposing. And they they develop a pretty, uh, they were not close friends by any stretch, but FDR develops a respect for this Washington insider, John Nance Garner. In the second Roosevelt term, however, Roosevelt takes a much more liberal stance, you know, the court packing plan, other more, uh, some would say, uh, more radical economic proposals. That was too much for John Nance Garner, to the point where by 1939, Garner is horrified when he finds out that FDR is considering running for a third term in 1940. And Garner makes it clear 
that he will put his name uh, in nomination for the presidency. And here he is, the sitting. Really? But yeah. So the, the, sitting, the sitting vice president would challenge yes. the sitting presidency. That is correct. Wow. That is correct. And needless to say, FDR couldn't wait to unload John Nance Garner, which he do, does. By the way, Garner's the one who utters the famous quote that the vice presidency wasn't worth a bucket of warm. Uh, they usually clean it up to say spit, but it was actually something worse than that. But regardless, uh, he's removed from the ticket and he's replaced by Henry Wallace. FDR's Secretary of Agriculture, a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, um, and Wallace uh, is, is selected primarily because Roosevelt loves Wallace's fighting progressivism. Uh, he's finally gotten rid of Garner, who he viewed as excessively conservative, and uh, of course FDR and Wallace win that third term, and during the course of the Second World War, Henry Wallace develops a kind of affection for the Soviet Union that some folks found to be a little bit concerning. And of course, as you get to the end of FDR's third term, because Wallace is so seemingly pro-Russian and because Wallace has taken a very strong stance on civil rights, a lot of Southern Democrats are saying to President Roosevelt, you gotta get rid of this guy. You gotta pick one of our own or you're gonna lose the solid South. So I would say it's civil rights, policies towards Russia, and some suspicion on the part of labor union leaders that Wallace was so far left, even they couldn't tolerate it. It's you end up with a compromised candidate, Senator Harry Truman from Missouri, who's pushed through on the basis of labor union and Southern support. And all I can say to you, Jeff, is from my personal opinion, thank God Wallace was removed because having Truman there when the World War, when World War II comes to an end and the Cold War begins, I think Truman had a much clearer sense of the Soviet Union than Henry Wallace ever did. Talk about Truman becoming president. So yeah. he becomes president, obviously, at the end of World War II, but they're still fighting. There are still major strategic decisions, both in the fight in the, fight in the Pacific but also, of course, in, in sort of how we're going to deal with the Soviet Union, you alluded to this, how we're going to deal with the Soviet Union afterwards. How, how close was Truman to FDR? How much did he know about what was going on? And I'm thinking again, for example, of the Manhattan Project, the development of the atomic bomb. How, how involved in the Roosevelt administration was Harry Truman? He was not involved at all, Jeff. He was not close to Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, so what we're still seeing here is the same old vestiges of the vice president being kept at a distance. And uh, Harry Truman meets with President Roosevelt twice between the inauguration in January and FDR's death in April. Two, twice. Two, two times in that much? Two wow. times in three or four months. Wow. He knows nothing about the Manhattan Project. Secretary of War Stimson has to come in the day after FDR dies and Truman becomes president and tell him, Mr. President, I've got something I need to tell you. That's the first time Harry Truman is fully briefed on the Manhattan Project. So there's no, there's no attempt on the part of a dying Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and this is, you know, this is a major criticism of mine against FDR and of the people around him who knew this man was dying. Uh, that Vice President Truman was just not brought into the loop whatsoever and had to spend weeks 
getting up to speed on all of those issues that you just mentioned, Jeff. So uh, Truman, obviously with, with Roosevelt's death, Truman becoming from vice president to president, having, as you say, weeks to get up to speed in and in really in a time situation where you might argue the United States doesn't have weeks right. president to get up to speed. Fortunately, we're winning the war, but still there are massive decisions like dropping the atomic bomb on Japan that Truman has to wrap his mind around. Um, that, that's an amazing fact. Um, it is. The, the 25th Amendment comes along not long after that, yeah. which has a significant effect then on the vice presidency and, and sort of the succession plan uh, to, to who becomes president. Talk a little bit about the sure. 25th Amendment and its effect on the vice presidency. Sure. So the 25th Amendment, you begin to hear people discussing it in the late 1950s after President Eisenhower has his second heart attack. And there's concern, at least in some quarters, of what would you do if you had a president who was alive but seriously disabled, you know, suffering a massive stroke like Woodrow Wilson had, for instance. So you begin to hear mutterings of this in the late 50s, but it really accelerates when President Kennedy is assassinated. Lyndon Johnson now becomes the president of the United States, but Lyndon Johnson had also had a series of heart attacks in the 1950s. He's hardly the picture of health as well. And the two people behind Lyndon Johnson in the order of succession are the Speaker of the House, John McCormick from Massachusetts, who was well into his 70s, and Carl Hayden, the President of the, United, uh, of the Senate, a senator from Arizona, who was born around the time of Custer's last stand. Hayden wow. was, I think, 86 or 7 or 8. Those are the two guys next in line at the height of arguably the Cold War people began to say, we need a procedure to fill that vacant slot. When Johnson steps up to the presidency, the vice presidency remains vacant from November 22nd, 1963 to January 20th, 1965. That was too long in the minds of many. So really, so, we don't have a vice, what you're saying is, and I think this might surprise some of our listeners, we don't have a vice president of the United States for over a year. That is correct. And by the way, we had, you know, under Tyler, for instance, the vice presidency was vacant for, you know, three, three years and 11 months. And that's what the 25th Amendment, at least in part, is designed to set up. It creates a process whereby you can fill those vice presidential vacancies and you don't have to rely on the next person in line being some quite elderly Speaker of the House or President of the Senate. So that's in what, in many ways, the driving force, that plus this question of what do you do? Let's say John F. Kennedy had been gravely wounded in Dallas, but not killed. What do you do in a process with a, with a situation like that? The 25th Amendment sets up a procedure where the vice president and the cabinet with congressional approval can call for the, re the replacement of the president due to disability. So this, the, the 25th Amendment, um, is it invoked? Is it ever used? How does it shape the course of the vice presidency after its adoption? So it's first invoked when President Nixon uh, in the fall of 1973, uh, I should say Vice President Agnew, in the fall of 1973 resigns in the midst of a corruption investigation. And President Nixon, using this new uh, 25th Amendment, nominates Congressman Gerald Ford from Michigan uh, to replace Agnew 
as the Vice President of the United States, subject to House and Senate confirmation, uh, which of course is exactly what happens. Nixon then resigns a year later, and now Ford, who's never been elected outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan, assumes the presidency and under the 25th Amendment has to fill that vice presidential vacancy that he just created by moving up. And so he selects Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York to be our vice president. So for a very strange period, from August of 74 to January 20th, 1977, we had essentially an unelected president and an unelected vice president uh, due to the 25th Amendment procedures. And that's astonishing. I, th- I think maybe we all have heard that, but I don't think we quite understand the impact, the, the meaning yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, vice President Rockefeller, then of course you have President Carter, um, vice presidents under President Carter. Um, the office, so how one becomes vice president has sort of been worked out. It's been changed. It's evolved. The office itself, as the executive branch continues to grow in power, mm. it's not like it's stopped growing in power just with FDR. It continues, especially in national security matters sure. uh, during the Cold War. The office of vice president, does it also evolve? Does yeah, the vice would... president become more influential over time? Yes, it does, Jeff. Uh, Again, somewhat gradually, but the National Security Act of 1947, which creates this body known as the National Security Council, mandates by law that the Vice President of the United States be a member of that council. We're not going to have another situation where you have a rookie Vice President coming in who doesn't know some of the inner secrets of the U.S. government. That's a substantial change that occurs in 1947. Now, it's really not until you get to Jimmy Carter, who selects Walter Mondale as his vice president, where Carter really does bring Mondale into his inner circle. He literally, Mondale literally has an office right down the hall from the president. He's at all national security meetings. He is a key advisor to President Carter. So this Mondale vice presidency is a somewhat significant development in terms of the expansion of the office and the prestige and power of the office. And of course, you could argue that that perhaps reaches the tights under uh, Dick Cheney as Vice President George W. Bush. So the change since World War II in the office of the Vice Presidency uh, has been quite dramatic. So a Vice President like Mondale under Carter and does that continue with, with his expanded role by law and just by the president's own choice of being advisor? Does that continue in the Reagan presidency? Do we see that same thing or is, have, do we sort of go back a little bit? I would say we see pretty much the same thing, Jeff. Now, George H.W. Bush as vice president, again, he's not part of Reagan's California crowd, but Ronald Reagan respected George H.W. Bush. He had, Bush had an incredible resume already by this point, CIA director, UN ambassador, American envoy to Beijing. Uh, so Bush's, particularly his foreign policy credentials were quite impressive. Reagan and uh, Bush met at least once a week for private lunch. No chiefs of staff, no political, but just the two of them. And according to both men in their memoirs, their discussions were useful, uh, frank, uh, you know, no holds barred. So uh, I would say under Ronald Reagan, for the most part, the Mondale, Carter Mondale uh, uh, model prevails. 
And, you know, there are a few exceptions in modern times. Dan Quayle, I would say, was not part of H.W. Bush's inner circle, uh, but certainly Al Gore was very influential in the Clinton administration and, of course, Dick Cheney in the George W. Bush administration. Can you talk a little bit about Dick Cheney and his sure. vice presidency? Because obviously September 11th is a cataclysmic event. It brings national security back to the forefront of, of the not just the mind of the country, but the mind and actions of the presidency. Bush, Bush becomes, as he described himself, as a war president now. Yes. Um, in fact, Cheney has been understood to be so influential, there's been a movie <laughs> called, I think, called Vice, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> made yeah. about Dick Cheney as sort of the idea that, well, it's really Dick Cheney, the vice president, who's in fact running everything. Um, talk about the evolution of, of the vice presidency after 9-11 with Dick Cheney. Sure. So, Jeff, I do think this notion that Dick Cheney was sort of pulling the strings, particularly in the first Bush administration, is, is fiction. Now, having said that, he was clearly influential. He's, he's up there with Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, Condi Rice. In terms of his influence on national security matters, now, this was a guy who had been a Secretary of Defense for four years. He had been a White House Chief of Staff under Jerry Ford. Uh, his credentials were impeccable. Bush relied on him, but he was Cheney was not running that administration. But again, so I'm trying I'm trying to walk a fine line here. He was influential. He was important. He's very much a continuation of that Mondale model, uh, but he's not the puppeteer that some people, including that depiction of Vice that you mentioned. So. Um, influential vice president, but not controlling the strings. I should mention one quick thing about Cheney, Jeff. Cheney actually led George W. Bush's vice presidential search committee. And uh -huh. uh, it's not, but and people say, oh, well, look at that. There's Cheney putting himself forward. That's actually not the case. It's now pretty clear to me and others that George W. Bush put him in that position knowing all along that he wanted Cheney to be his vice president. And Cheney had already turned him down on that request. And once you get deep into the process, Cheney presents his recommendations. Bush looks at him and says, no, Dick, you're the one I want. And at that point, late in the game, Cheney had to say yes. Ah, that's very clever. That's, putting, that's sort of flipping it from what you yes. usually hear. That's correct, right. Bush was more of an effective politician, I think, than a lot of folks give him credit for. Fascinating. Um, by the time we, we get to, of course, the vice presidency of Mike Pence, we, you know, at post 9-11 again and the national security issues that America faces, the executive branch has evolved. It's grown dramatically uh, over the course, not just from the New Deal, but from post-World War II and the Cold War. Um, the evolution of, of the executive branch and the power of the executive branch, it's something you've thought a lot about, not just the power of the presidency, but also the vice presidency. Can I just ask your, your thoughts, your opinion as a scholar of this? Has that growth been a good thing for the republic or not? Yeah, on the whole, Jeff, I would have to say that I don't think it's been a good thing. I do understand some of it. I actually think in the realm of national security, there certainly are very powerful arguments to be made uh, for giving the commander in chief a certain amount of latitude in that particular area. And I've written accordingly on that. 
but I think on the whole, this oversized, over the top, you know, we now expect our presidents and to some extent our vice presidents to be the consoler in chief. The, uh, I mean, they are expected to deal with every issue under the sun. Congress has been acquiescent in terms of kicking far too many responsibilities down Pennsylvania Avenue to the executive branch. Uh, it is not healthy, Jeff. I'm a Hamiltonian. I believe in an energetic presidency, but I don't believe in the kind of all-encompassing um, presidential government that we seem to have today. It's not good for separation of powers. It's not good just on so many levels. So I'm, I am concerned about this drift towards this unbridled presidency that to some extent both Democrats and Republicans have contributed to. Mm. Your study of the presidency, but also the vice presidency, executive administration, um, for our listeners, who's your favorite vice president? <laughs> well, that's a good one. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, believe it or not, I'm going to say something that's probably going to surprise a lot of folks. I'm actually going to go back and say that I think John Adams, to a great extent, is one of my favorites because he has a New England man. Well, that's part of it. He, <laughs> he actually, his house is actually about 12 miles from where I'm speaking to you right now. So I grant you, I've got a kind of local bias. I'm pretty parochial. But no, look, an impossible job with a towering figure of a president, George Washington. So as vice president, John Adams is in this shadow of this remarkable man, Washington. And then as Washington's successor, imagine trying to su succeed George Washington as president of the United States, really an impossible task. But again, I would say for the most part as vice president for eight years, John Adams conducted himself with dignity he worked out some of the issues between this weird role of the vice president as a creature of the Senate and also of the executive branch. He did it with dignity, even for the most part, restrained his furious temper when members of the Senate would personally attack him. Uh, I give John Adams a lot of credit that a lot of folks who look at the vice presidency do not. So he's one of my dark horse favorites. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> he, he no doubt would feel historically vindicated by that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. No, this has been a fascinating uh, insights, Steve, on the vice presidential office, on more broadly on the importance of executive power and perhaps the importance of maintaining a balance <laughs> between executive power and the other powers uh, of the federal government. Thank you so much for joining us and lending these insights today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And again, thank you all for all the great work that you do. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash Pod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AMIDEA Podcast. From the SRAM Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickett.